You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for April 2009. Today's episode is titled, Techniques for Survival in Today's Uncertain World. Just as there are seasons in a year, there are also seasons in business and economic matters. Uncertain times come and go in our uncertain world. No one likes uncertainty. It leads to fear and many times panic. It drives us to seek something that is stable and certain. Many believe that government is the only source of business and economic stability. They argue that nothing is capable of withstanding the uncertainties of life except government. No amount of government intervention can produce the stability and certainty that comes from alignment with the teachings of Christ. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Techniques for Survival in Today's Uncertain World. Good evening and welcome to the webinar. The title of tonight's presentation is Techniques for Survival in Today's Uncertain World. Today's world is a world of chaos and confusion. And there are many signs of the time. Take, for example, presumption. Wall Street, automakers, Sam Zell, Neiman Marcus, Sachs, all of these companies are showing signs of presumption. And the way you see it is debt. Debt is always presumption. And when you see lots of debt, you see people that are burdened down with presumption. And many times the debt doesn't work out. In the case of Sam Zell, he bought a... Uh, a series of um, newspaper publications about a year or so ago. He did a leverage buyout, and of course, that turned out to be a very bad investment, and now those, those uh, investments are in bankruptcy. Greed is another great sign of our time. Bernie Madoff, of course, has been uh, quite infamous over the last few months. His uh, Ponzi scheme cost investors somewhere north of $50 billion. The latest numbers I've heard have been upward of $60 billion dollars have been lost by wealthy investors who totally trusted him. Then we have corruption and greed, the well-known story of the governor of Illinois who uh, sought to sell the Senate seat that uh, was vacant when Barack Obama became president. And of course, he was looking for political favors through that process. He eventually got impeached by his own Senate. Then you have self-serving. Self-serving is, is the reality of the difference in the pay gap between management and workers. Increasingly, there is a huge gap between compensation that senior executives are making and the ordinary workers. And this was illustrated by um, the recent request for a bonus by the uh, CEO of Merrill Lynch when he asked for a $10 million bonus at a time when his company was failing. Hedonism. Hedonism is the love of pleasure. And increasingly, we're, we're seeing athletes and entertainers be paid enormous sums of money simply to entertain us. Idolatry. Atheists are asserting themselves. For example, uh, over the holidays in the Washington State Capitol building, there was, a, there was a sign posted that said, There are no gods, no devils, no angels. Religion is but myth. And superstition that hardens the heart and enslaves the mind. So it shows again the audacity of the atheist to come out and make those kinds of claims. And finally, another sign is the rejection of scripture and public policy. In the United States, we have, re we have elected a president who does not look to scripture for guidance on public policy. So on social issues such as homosexuality and abortion, where is he getting his principles by which he is making his policies? If he doesn't look to scripture, what does he look to? Or what about the entitlements like health care? 
Is health care an entitlement? And if so, where would he get that principle? And how about the debt? Right now, the debt stands just probably just under $11 trillion, and it's rising rapidly. And where do you get the policy on how you manage debt and whether or not you should have debt? These are all things that he's coming up with independent of Scripture, which begs the question, where does he get these? And what gives him the right to disconnect from Scripture to develop public policy? And there are other signs of the time. For example, the energy cost. The energy costs have just gotten enormous. We saw last year it go to about $150 a barrel, and then recently it's dropped down to $40 a barrel. What about bankruptcies? Bankruptcies have been huge, up 31% over last year. Foreclosures are up 81%, including well-respected companies such as Saab. And then you have the stock market, which is down 50% over the last 18 months. Truly, we have some significant problems in our economy. The unemployment rate. In 2007, it was something just uh, over 4%, and now it's pushing 10%. The Fed funds rate, which is a measure of the interest rates that, uh, that we have to pay to buy uh, automobiles and mortgages, etc. A year ago, that was a little over 4%, which was considered to be a fairly healthy rate, and now it's very low. And the reason it's very low is that is the reality that, that the economy is, is so slow and they're trying to get it stimulated. So they're doing everything they can to do that, and one way to do it is with lowering the Fed funds rate. And finally, just look at the economic growth. In 2007, it was around 2%. Today, it is a negative 4%. More signs of the time telling us how difficult and challenging it is in our current economy. If you look at the S&P 500 earnings per share, trailing uh, 12 months trailing, this is a very interesting statistic. This is basically the sum of the um, earnings per share of all the S&P 500 companies, and it looks back 12 months. So if you go back to the third quarter of 2008, you can see it was over $45. And then the third, fourth quarter of 2008, it had dropped down to a little over 25 First quarter of 2009, it's down around 20. And second quarter of 2009, it's forecast to be around 15. So it is dropping dramatically, showing the difficulty that our public companies are having in, in generating a profit. And how about this one? We're now into our third stimulus package. You may recall a year ago, Congress was just delighted to send all of us checks. They call those tax rebates. And, of course, to send those checks, what they had to do is they had to go and borrow the money, which they didn't seem to have a problem doing it. So they sent us that, and that was a stimulus package, something on the order of $100 billion. And then six months later, we're in, we're in trouble even more. And so they come up with what they call the TARP program, which is the Troubled Asset Relief Program. It was the intent to go into the financial institutions and provide ways for them to offload bad assets. And then it became a way for them to buy uh, interest in these financial institutions instead of buying the, the bad assets. And, of course, we know that that money wasn't spent as was uh, promised, as witnessed by AIG and all that's gone on there. And so now we have TARP-2 in the process, which is going to be a partnership with the private sector. And now we're looking at a trillion dollars that's going to be put into the economy with, in the hopes of turning it around and developing uh, health once again. And now take a look at the debt curve. Now this is a phenomenal curve. You see how flat it is from roughly uh, 1998 to around 2000. It's fairly flat. And then you see 2003 it's starting to turn up, 2006, and now we're accelerated. 
And today I saw a statistic that our our deficit for 2009 is not going to be a trillion dollars as originally forecast. It's now going to be pushing $2 trillion. So this curve here is very conservative. Obama has made it clear that he expects trillion-dollar deficits for the foreseeable future, which I'm taking that to mean for the rest of his administration and if he's reelected on for another four years. So you can see the federal government it seems seemingly has no problem going deeper and deeper into debt. And at the end of his term, if his promise is true, then we're going to be looking at something like trillion dollars and twenty trillion dollars in debt as a people in this, in this United States. Now, how are we going to pay for this debt? What are we going to do? Are we going to give away assets? Like, how about the Capitol or the White House? Or maybe we give them Fort Knox. Or how about some of our national parks? Or maybe we give away technology. Some way or another, we have to pay for this debt. When I was an undergraduate at the University of Texas, I took a geology course. And uh, I was very surprised uh, one day when I walked into class. And the geology professor, I guess, thought he was an economics professor because he stood up in front of the class and began to share his view on economics. And basically what he said is there is no day of reckoning, meaning that uh, we will never have to pay off this debt. And so he was justifying the fact that the United States was in debt. And this was back in the 60s when compared to today, that debt was nothing. And now we're going enormously deep into debt, and we have no strategy to pay off this debt. And the people that own this debt, like China and Japan, have telegraphed their desire to reduce their exposure to, uh, to the uh, federal government debt. And so they do not want to buy these, these uh, bonds in the future, which means as these bonds mature and they're paid off and the federal government tries to issue new bonds to cover the bonds they're paying off, there will be fewer buyers. Fewer buyers will put pressure on the interest rates, which will drive the interest rates up, which will take a bigger bite out of the federal budget, which will make it more and more difficult for the federal government to meet its obligations, and so will drive us deeper and deeper into debt. It is seemingly a death spiral that we're in with uh, seemingly no resolve in Washington to do anything about it. What this is is sin amok. All of these are signs of sin amok, which is rejection of God. That means there is no moral compass. And so as we look at this, we say, well, gee, what, what's, all, what's going on here? Well, there are a number of factors going on here. For example, Keynesian economics. You see a picture here of uh, John Maynard Keyes right here. Uh, he was a, a very famous economist back in the 30s, and he is the one that's responsible for the mentality today that debt is good. He's also responsible for the idea that the way we get out of a, a financial crisis is through uh, not only deficit spending, but also by, by doing public work programs. Now, it's interesting to note that back in the 30s when they did these Keynesian practices, that the United States did not come out of the recession. In fact, the Depression continued on through the 30s. It wasn't until World War II that the United States came out of that Depression. So arguably, Keynesian economics didn't work then, and it was very obvious, but for some reason, uh, nobody has made note of that. And so we continue to do Keynesian economics, public works programs, and deficit spending as a way to try to stimulate the economy. And then we have mammon worship. And of course, you know, mammon worship is all about money. And when we start making decisions based on money, when we choose where we work based on money, when we define success based on money, when everything we do is about money, 
then what we've done is we have compromised our worship of God. Because scripture says you cannot worship God in money. You have to make a choice. And mammon worship is rampant. Sometimes I wish that I could stand at the door of my church and the Holy Spirit would just put a little meter over the head of each person. And the meter was a gauge of how much mammon worship was going on in that person. I think we would all be surprised at the level of mammon worship that goes on in our churches every Sunday. And then we have greed. Of course, if you're familiar with the Wall Street movie, uh, where uh, Michael Douglas plays a fictitious character named Gordon Gecko, and he has a fictitious uh, stock, stock shareholders meeting in which he makes the famous statement, greed is good. Of course, greed is good is all about money. It's just another expression of mammon worship. It's another expression of the, of, uh, of the reality in so many of us that success is denominated in dollars. Narcissism. Narcissism is all about self. It's all about the worship of self. It's all about self-consumption and self-focus. And one of the great narcissists of our time was President Clinton. He was very self-consumed. It was all about him. And he didn't mind having illicit affairs in the White House and really uh, desecrating his office with his illicit affairs and justifying it, going going on, on camera and denying it, which means he lied, and then... The only way he was able to stay in office was by virtue of a partisan Congress that was the partisan Senate that allowed him to stay in office even though he was a liar and even though he was a self-serving individual. Of course, the assumption that was made then was that whatever you do in your private life has nothing to do with your public life, which we know is not true. That is not a biblical concept. Whatever you do in any area of life is what you will do in every area of life. Then you have making up your own rules, and that is what President Obama is all about. President Obama, even tonight, he talked about he doesn't want to be driven by any ideology. And then another point in the speech, he talked about how he does have ethical concerns. Well, where does he get his ethics? If he doesn't have an ideology, where does where do the ethics come from? And so he's internally inconsistent in his own position because he is driven by making up his own rules. He does not wish to be restrained by what the uh, Word of God has to say. It's interesting that uh, I, I saw a video of, Pre- of uh, President Obama a couple of years ago talking about his view of Scripture relative to public policy. And he was, he was talking about, you know, kind of making fun of Scripture and basically saying, you know, what Scripture can we look at to guide us? For example, uh, if we look to the Old Testament, we might conclude that we still need to have slavery. Or if we uh, look to the uh, New Testament, we might conclude that we can't have a defense department. All of these things are showing a lack of understanding of how to really interpret Scripture. And it shows his weakness as as a professing Christian in being able to live up to what Christ has called him to do. And finally, single-generational thinking. Single-generational thinking is all about self. It's all about what we do right now. It's all about satisfying ourselves right now. And, of course, the classic example of single-generational thinking is homosexuality. Homosexuality left to itself will only last one generation. Probably not even that long because of all the diseases associated with it. So the reality is that single generational living, as expressed by the homosexual community, is a, is a, ki- a kiss of death for the uh, for the human race. But these are all signs of sin, symptoms of sin that are work in our culture that are creating the turmoil and uncertainty and instability that we're all living in today. So as we think about this. All of these symptoms are rooted in an assumption about God, which is either there is no God, or if there is a God, he's not involved in financial matters. 
And so that's what most people assume today. Most people seem to believe there is a God. There are very few atheists, really. So most people assume the second assumption. If there is a God, he's not interested in financial matters. So the question is, what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, let's just consider a text here. This is from the Old Testament. This is the book of Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel, of course, is one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And uh, he wrote at a time when Israel was in rebellion against God. And so this is what he wrote in Ezekiel 33, verses 29 through 32. Then they, that is Israel, will know that I am the Lord. When I have made the land a desolate waste because of all the detestable things they have done. My people come to you, Ezekiel, and this is God talking to Ezekiel, as they usually do, and sit before you to listen to your words. But they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Now I find this text is startlingly convicting. It is uh, stunning. It is stunning in what it's, what it's saying here. Notice it makes a very clear connection with, between economics and sin. And I'll read it to you again. I have made the land, that's God speaking, a desolate waste because of all the detestable things they have done. And our detestable things are any time we are in disobedience to God. Anytime we refuse to bend the knee to his truth, anytime we refuse to obey his commandments, anytime we try to make up our own rules, anytime we try to live strictly for ourselves, these are detestable things to God. God has made each one of us, and we have no right to define our lives. God is the only one who has the right to define our lives. And it's a detestable thing when we try to define our lives and anything associated with our lives apart from God. And so he goes on to talk about how people go to church. Of course, they didn't have church in the Old Testament. They had synagogue. But it's the same thing. The principle applies today just as it did then. People go to church every Sunday. And they listen. They listen to words. But they do not put them into practice. They hear the scriptures. But the scripture has no impact on them. And they even begin to express devotion. They talk like they really have a heart for God. Notice it says, with their mouths they express devotion. They talk a good fight. They act like they're sincere. They're well-meaning. But their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed to them, you are. You being the, the speaker of the word of God, whoever you may be, are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. In other words, they may give you all kinds of compliments, may enjoy what you say, may enjoy, if you're a presenter, if you present music, they would enjoy that, but they hear your words and do not put them into practice. This is the calamity we're in. We're in a calamity today because of sin and the economic consequences that follow sin. Now, the government has a solution to this. First of all, the government doesn't recognize the economic consequences of sin. And so what their solution is, is called sin management. Sin management is treating the symptoms which will not, which will not treat the root issue and therefore will not produce sustained success. I remember back in the 80s when the SNL debacle happened 
just like today where we have a, a debacle in the mortgage industry, the uh, there was greed that set in and people uh, thought they could make a quick buck. And so they were they were bending the rules and cutting corners and doing all kinds of illicit things. And in the end, it failed. And so all these financial institutions failed. And the federal government has to write in and take over all these bad assets and dispose of these assets. And the, the conclusion of the federal government back then was the same it is today. Well, we need more sin management. As if that is the real solution. As if that's going to really solve anything. And the reality, sin management never works. It never produces lasting success. What needs to happen in our financial world today is we need a wholesale repentance. We need people turning to Christ. We need people living righteously, doing the right thing as God defines it, not as we defined it. And if you have people doing the right thing, you have trustworthy people. You have people that you don't have to worry about them stealing and doing Ponzi schemes. You don't have to worry about them being dishonest. You don't have to worry about them being uh, not being transparent. But today we don't have that, and we don't have a government that recognizes the impact of sin on a culture. In fact, you never hear people in Washington, or at least I haven't heard them, talk about sin. What I hear them talking about is greed, but they never acknowledge that greed is sin. And so what they're going to do is sin management, just like they've always done. Sin management didn't work back uh, 20 years ago. It will not work today. So you wonder, well, 20 years from now, where will we be? What will be the next financial crisis when greed kicks in again and we have another meltdown? And that will be an interesting exercise to kind of think that through. Will it happen in the credit card world? Or maybe it will be back in the commercial lending world? Or maybe it's uh, in automobile loans. Somewhere or another, sin will pop up again, and it will, again, destroy our financial institutions. But in the meantime, the government is going to offer its remedies. So remedy number one to try to solve our problems today, the federal government is going to try to manage this by throwing money at it. And we've already seen that we have bailouts in terms of investments in companies that are considered critical to the economy. We've bailed out the automobile industry, or at least we thought we did, but it looks like that it's very likely the automobile industry may wind up in bankruptcy anyway. We've tried to bail out the financial industry, and that's still uh, going badly. We don't know where that's going to go. We've now tried to up the ante by actually buying these what they call toxic assets. These are assets that are not performing. And so we're trying to find a way to uh, deal with these bad assets. So this will supposedly free up the banks and financial institutions to loan money. After all, we are driven by debt, so we need money to be flowing. And so the government is after trying to get debt flowing again. And, of course, in the process, the government will spend, and they will spend incurring more and more debt themselves. They will probably be government programs coming up. And all of this is rooted in a desire to be egalitarian. Egalitarian is all about everybody being equal. This is a very socialistic doctrine. And it means more taxes to those that are wealthy so that we can redistribute the wealth and we can all be equal. Remedy number two will be more regulation. This is sinners overseeing sinners. This is just sin management amok. Why do we think that we can take sinful people who do not know Christ, who do not walk according to a biblical worldview, who do not know what righteousness is, send them to our financial world and oversee and bring righteousness to our financial world. In reality, the only thing that will produce success in anything is righteousness. We don't seem to understand the way to righteousness is not sin management, but repentance, genuine repentance from the heart. When people change from the heart, 
then their actions will change. If you just try to impose rules on them, you're forcing them to do something they don't want to do. They'll always be looking for a way out. Remedy number three will be selective socialism. You can expect that they'll be nationalizing industries such as banking. Maybe they'll nationalize the automobile industry. Maybe they'll nationalize the airline industry. Whatever industry winds up being crippled is subject to being nationalized so the federal government can step in and preserve it and maintain what we believe to be necessary services for our economy. And remedy number four would be total socialism, which is a regulation of everything. Now, I don't know how far this is going to go. Nobody does. Obviously, it's only going to go as far as necessary because Obama doesn't want to go to total socialism, I don't think. Well, he might, but I don't think he does. I think he just wants to take it as deeply as he has to to try to get things going again to what he calls a prosperous situation. But the reality is we will never be prosperous, truly prosperous, except if we follow biblical principles. But our government doesn't understand that because they don't believe God has anything to do with the financial world. That's where their presupposition about God is wrong, and that presupposition is driving the policies that they're making in Washington. So let's look at some techniques that we can employ, given the fact that we're in a a situation where the government's approach to the problem is going to be sin management. Even though sin management will not work, that's what they're going to do, and so we've got to deal with this situation. How do we respond? How do we exist? And how do we move forward in the midst of this bad solution that the federal government is going to impose? Well, let me just give you some possibilities here. First of all, think about your personal life. Now, you'll notice I've given you a number of things you can think about, but I want you to focus on the things I've underlined. For example, the first one there is, is don't fret. Matthew 6 tells us very clearly, fretting does you no good. You can worry all you want, but it will do nothing for you. It doesn't add one day to your life. It doesn't add one dollar to your pocketbook. It doesn't give you one advantage in finding your next assignment. It does nothing for you. There's no reason to fret. Fretting is a sign of fear. Fear is the opposite of faith. We need to step up and trust that God is our provider and our source. He has a plan and a purpose, and our job is to discern what that is and trust him to lead us into that. So do not fret. The next one, money. Be a steward. You know, Wall Street tells you you're consumers, tells us all we're consumers. And you know, when you hear the term consumer, it's natural. You want to live up to that. It's like an expectation that's been placed on you. But the reality is you're not a consumer. I'm not a consumer. We are stewards. Stewards are those that manage resources for someone else. And so we need to be very, very conscious about that reality. In fact, we're told that properly stewarding resources qualifies us for more stewardship. The way we get promoted in the kingdom of God is that we steward whatever God has given us well. And so if we're going to steward things well, we need to understand the five uses of money. And I'm sorry I don't have time tonight to go into that, but let me just assure you, the five uses of money are totally different from the world. The world's way is to first worry about your consumption, your personal needs. In the kingdom of God, the last thing you worry about is your consumption, your personal needs. And so the the kingdom of God is always upside down from the world. So we've got to start thinking not as consumers but as stewards and recognizing every dollar bill that's in your pocket, every dollar of credit you have in the bank, everything that you own, God owns. And he simply made you a steward of that. And so our job is to discern how he wants us to steward that. 
The next thing is relationships. You notice that I've underlined be interdependent. It's very important that we learn to be interdependent. We tend to be very independent. We tend to be people that want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, and we don't want anybody telling us what to do. We, we want to be people that can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We want to be self-made people. That is not how God made us. In fact, what you're going to find as you read Scripture is that wisdom is found by being interdependent, by learning to seek counsel, by hearing the Holy Spirit through counsel. It is foolish of us to think that anybody can discern the will of God clearly by themselves. It's foolish to think anybody can discern what they're supposed to do in life clearly by themselves or think they can make good choices clearly by themselves. Nobody can. We all have inherent limitations, and God has designed that we complement ourselves with others so that we can be more whole and more in our perspective and have more skill in making choices because we are interdependent. The next one is church. And I've underlined, invest in spiritual food. In Matthew 4.4, Jesus makes a very startling statement. He says this, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now that is a startling statement. Here's a man that's in the desert who is starving. He's been there for 40 days, hungry. He's been fasting. He's ready to eat. And here comes the enemy to try to tempt him to, to leave the situation that God has placed him in before God is finished. That's another lesson. Don't leave whatever God has put you in before it's time. Don't try to, don't try to get out of circumstances. In fact, one of the things I, I want to, I encourage people to pray for is not pray, don't pray for deliverance from circumstances. Pray for growth through circumstances. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was living through that circumstance that God had ordained to, to reveal something about who he was in this character. And in the process, eating prematurely was inappropriate. And so what he's saying is spiritual food, doing the will of God, is more important to me than natural food. So we need to learn to invest in spiritual food. Spiritual food is something we need every day, just like we need natural food. The one thing that you cannot go with every day is food, at least not very long. You might be able to fast a while, but eventually you will die. Well, that reality is true spiritually. If you don't have spiritual food on a regular basis, you will die spiritually. Now, I'm not talking about relative to eternal salvation. I'm talking about you will, you will be walking death. You will have no life in you. You will have no energy in you. You will have no focus, no discernment in you. And you will miss what God is doing, what he's trying to say to you. So learn to invest in spiritual food. One of my uh, clients called me a, oh, a couple of months ago and was talking about the financial calamity he was in and how difficult it was. And he said they were really cutting back on their budget. And he indicated that he was going to cut back on all, you know, all the products and services you know, that, that I was doing as well as other people that were feeding him spiritually. And so I, I asked him, I said, are you going to stop eating? And we said, no. I said, well, why are, you why are you stopping spiritual food, but you're not stopping physical food? Why are you doing that? And you could tell he had never thought about that. He had never considered that. I said, well, look what Jesus did. Jesus made it very clear. Spiritual food is more important than physical food. Do not stop investing in spiritual food. No matter how, things, how tight things are, keep investing in your spiritual diet. You need spiritual nutrition every day to live well. And remember, we live in God's universe. 
He made the rules. And so if you want to live well, you must follow his rules. And if you have not learned his rules, you will default to the world's ways. And the world's ways lead you to economic calamity and political calamity. You do not want that. You want, you want prosperity that comes from obedience to God. And work. I've underlined work as unto the Lord. Most of us think about work as a job. And I'm on a little personal campaign to not use that word right now, or at least not very often, because most people think of a job as something they have to do. It's something that's a necessary evil. It's something that just makes money for them. But I want to assure you that God created you for a purpose, and he's ordained your work. And we're going to see that in a few minutes with another text. And so when you recognize that, that he's ordained where you work, and you realize that he's in charge of everything, you realize he's the ultimate boss. And we're told in Colossians 3.17 to work as unto the Lord, as if we have to give an account to him. In fact, we will give an account to him. And so we need to think about everything we do at work and say, Lord, are we working as unto you? Are we representing you? Can we put your name on this and say, this is done in the name of the Lord Jesus? Does this reflect your quality and your character? And your nature, that's what our work needs to reflect. And are we, are we where we are supposed to be? Many of us are out of place. In fact, if you look at sector statistics, it suggests that probably 85% of us are out of place. Now, that's a startling number when you think about that. Most people want to go into denial over that. But when you have time to talk to them, you'll find most people have picked their work assignment not based on the will of God, but based on money where they could make the most money. And finally, public policy. May I encourage you, vote a biblical worldview. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a startling text. First of all, it tells us how to worship. It tells us how to worship, and we worship by becoming transformed. Our minds being transformed, meaning we take on a biblical worldview. We stop thinking and acting like the world. We start thinking and acting like Christ. And when we do that, the text says that now we can discern the will of God. Why would you think you can discern the will of God if you're not engaged in the process of transformation? I would argue that this text suggests that you can't. And yet we have all kinds of professing Christians running around thinking that they are hearing God by themselves while they're not feeding on the word, they're not interdependent, they're not working as unto the Lord, and they don't have a biblical worldview. Why would we think they are hearing God clearly? I think the reality is they're not. They're in deception, but they don't know it. So vote a biblical worldview. And may I say say this in all boldness? If you don't have a biblical worldview, don't vote. Because you don't know how to vote. The only thing that, that will bring lasting blessing and prosperity to us is to vote a biblical worldview. Now, as I've shared these techniques to you, obviously there are others that are up there that we could have talked about, but in the interest of time, I'm going to have to leave it at what I've done here. But I want you to notice something here. These things up here, don't fret, be a steward, be interdependent, invest in spiritual food, work as into the Lord, vote vote a biblical worldview. Uh, You know, a lot of people can do this without much of a relationship with Christ. Now, the latter, latter ones are harder, the last two. But or literally the last three, but the first three are pretty easy. Uh, a lot of people have learned how to not fret. They don't know Christ, but they've learned to meditate or, or to uh, learn to to uh, exercises to to just to, to breathing exercises and other uh, things they can do just to relax. 
there are other people that uh, out there I've seen that don't profess Christ that that are very generous and they they don't just use money for themselves. And I've seen a number of people that don't know Christ that have learned how to be interdependent. So those things can happen by virtue of God's common grace. And Proverbs 17:28 is a very interesting text because it says even the fool can seem to be wise if he doesn't if he uses his mouth properly. So even foolish people can do things to bless themselves, and they can look like wise people if they just follow God's principles. And so this is a wonderful thing that God has given us. And so these, these principles here, as good as they are, they're really not a full picture, but they're a good starting point. Now I want to talk to you a little bit about the stock market. So everybody's concerned about the stock market, and just want to share with you my perspective on it. And I'm not claiming I have any particular lock on it, but... I have spent some time praying and thinking about it, and I've been in the financial world for a long time. I've seen a number of these markets go up and down, and I've seen the greed and and uh, what that does. And so I think I've developed some understanding of the markets. And and basically, you know, you got to recognize where you are in your own faith about about economic consequences. If you agree that sin has economic consequences, and not everybody does, but if you accept that, if you accept what we read in Ezekiel that there's a direct correlation between sin and economic consequences, then here's, here's some things to consider. If the government can borrow money, the market will probably rally. Because what the government's going to do is borrow the money and pump it into the market, and that will produce some level of fruit and some level of seeming economic prosperity. And I said seeming because it's an illusion. Because you're simply borrowing money and, and, and just placing it someplace else. It's not real profit you haven't generated a real a real fruit in all this it's just moving it's just financial games financial engineering so if indeed this is happens and this is my personal strategy here i've asked i think this is what's going to happen i think the government continues will continue to have credit for a period of time it will continue to be able to borrow money and what i'm asking the lord for is an exit strategy from the public markets i'm looking i'm not looking to get out all at once i'm just looking out to get out over time as it makes sense, as uh, my investments begin to come back and I feel like the value is being realized in the various positions, I'm going to begin to liquidate those positions and I'm going to get the money out of the public markets. Now, if you believe that government is going to run out of borrowing capacity anytime soon, you need to prepare for an economic calamity. I think, I think if, if the government cannot pump money into the markets, we're, we're, in, we're in a deep hole. I think that's the only way we're going to have any hope of being able to get out of this, and it'll be slow. If we look at the 30s as any indication, you know, we just muddled along in the 30s until there was a war. And that might be what we do here is we'll muddle along. But if they didn't, hadn't pumped the money in, I don't know if they would have even muddled along. They might have even gone deeper in the tank. So the money they pump in will probably keep us muddling along for a while, and maybe something will happen to bring us out. I was reading an article a few weeks ago about the economists. They had a conference, and, and none of them could come up with a mechanism to turn this thing around. All of them were feeling very, very uh, concerned about where this was going. So my view on the markets is that because of the greed and the corruption that's becoming more and more obvious, it's not a safe place to be. And granted, if all of a sudden there's a revival on Wall Street, and there's a turnaround, and we have repentance taking place, that's a totally different picture. But I don't see any evidence of that right now, but I think that's something we should pray for. It would be wonderful to have a public market where we had men of integrity, men of God, men walking in righteousness, doing the will of God, operating. 
then we can have a very healthy, robust, profitable, prosperous economy. Some of you may recall the Chinese research that was done over a period of about 20 years. They were trying to seek to understand what is it, why is it that America is the most powerful and prosperous nation in the world. And they came to a very clear conclusion. The researchers said there was no doubt. We studied everything in America. We studied their, their education system, their political system, their social systems, their economic systems. We studied everything we could find. And we came to a very clear, clear conclusion. The reason that America is the most powerful and prosperous nation in the world is because of the biblical values that it embraces. Biblical values produce prosperity. The president of China saw that research and was so impressed with that, he said this, and this is startling. He said, I am, I am tempted to make Christianity the national religion of China. Of course, for an atheistic country, that's just not possible. And so, in the end, he didn't do that. Because he was never really convicted of Christ, he was only interested in the financial blessing that comes from following Christ. Now, as helpful as these techniques are, there's an even better technique to build your life on. And I'm talking about the techniques I shared with you on a couple of slides ago. Those, those techniques of, of being a steward and, and being interdependent and, and things like that, those are very powerful techniques, and they work, and they work well. But there's even something better. Build your life on Christ. That is the most powerful way to, work, to walk through turbulent, difficult times. When you build your life on Christ, you're like Peter walking on the water. It doesn't matter what the storm is, how, how bad the wind is blowing, how bad it's raining, how high the waves are. If you have your eyes on Christ, you can walk on water. And that's what we all need to do. Interesting, as soon as Peter got his eyes off the Lord, he sank. And I think that's where we are and mostly in Christianity today is we have our eyes off the Lord, which is why most of us are sinking, getting caught up in the fear and the uh, all the emotion that's going on around the economy right now. So let's just take a look at the real solution. The real solution to our economic troubles right now and our economic calamity is not sin management, but sin eradication. And there's only one way to eradicate sin. And that's by being a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Christ, a servant of Christ, one who obeys the commands of Christ, a disciplined learner, someone that looks like Christ in everything they do. Disciples practice all the techniques that I previously mentioned and more. Disciples of Jesus obey the teachings of Jesus. And there are two key elements of obeying Christ. Number one is general obedience, which is biblical worldview. It's, being, it's seeing everything through the lens of the Bible. It's recognizing that everything in life starts with my view of God, and the Bible is my best source of revelation about who God is and how he wants us to live. And secondly is specific obedience, and this is obedience to my specific purpose in life. Just like this runner here is running his race, you see he's running in the lane. You see that runner has been assigned a lane to run in. And if he doesn't run in that lane, he will be disqualified. And so to run the race, he's got to stay within the boundaries that have been set for him. Well, that's just like our personal life purpose. We all have a race to run. We all have specific purpose that God has created us for. And I know that's a challenge for a lot of us to get to because most of us think, you know, that unless we're a pastor or we're a missionary or we're a Bible teacher or an evangelist, we're not very important. Because we think very dualistically, which means that we don't see that God values the work in the workplace. 
we think the workplace is nothing more than just a necessary evil. It's a place to make, make money, and if we happen to like our work, that's just a bonus. But the reality is that God made you specifically for work that he wanted you to do. And we're going to see that in a moment in, the, in a text of Scripture. But let's talk about general obedience for just a second. Every Christian is charged to obey the commands of Christ. That is to live in accordance with a biblical worldview. So let me just read you a couple of texts. This is what we call the Great Commission. I think it's mislabeled. I think the Great Commission is actually Genesis 1, where we have the commission to rule God's creation. I think this is a, a, a commandment to discipleship. And the reason that we need to be disciples is so we can do what we were put here to do in the first place, which is to rule God's creation. So notice what Matthew 28 says. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I want you to notice how this thing starts. It starts out with all authority in heaven and earth. You see that right here? All authority in heaven and earth. That's what Jesus has been granted by the Father. He has all authority. It's interesting it starts that way because everything starts with authority. What do you have authority to do? You see, we all live in delegated authority. The reason that you are a parent is because God has delegated authority to you to be a parent. If you're a business owner, the reason you're a business owner is because God has delegated authority to you to do that. If you happen to be a church leader, the reason you're that is because God has delegated authority to you to do that. And, of course, God has delegated authority for government. Romans 13 makes that very clear. There is no authority that exists that God has not ordained, even dysfunctional authority. And I know all of us have experienced dysfunctional authority, but even in the midst of that, God is in the midst of dysfunctional authority accomplishing his purposes. So we must always start by recognizing who's in charge and where the authority has been granted. So Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth to instruct us in what he wants us to do. He says, therefore now, go and make disciples. That's the game we're in. Go and make disciples. That's the charge we have. Make disciples of all nations. Disciples are learners. They're followers. They're people that look like their teacher. They look like their master. So it's our job to go and make disciples. And the first thing that happens when we make disciples is we baptize them. Baptism is, a, is an act of identifying. We, they identify with God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. They identify with the body of believers. And so that's the starting point for Christianity is identification. It is recognizing I'm not part of the world anymore. I'm now part of the community of God. And then it's teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Notice that it doesn't say teaching them doctrine or teaching them theology. But please understand you have to learn those things. But the end game is not the knowledge. The end game is obedience. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So we have to learn what Jesus commanded. That's the doctrine. That's the truth of the word of God. And we have to put that into practice. We have to obey it. That's the call that we have is obedience. And so this is, this is the call of God to every Christian is to grow up in Christ. And by the way, I know of no text that gives anybody permission to redefine Christianity. 
Christianity is about discipleship. It is not about a ticket to heaven. I know so many people think Christianity is just fire insurance. It just keeps them out of hell. It's just a way to be sure that they're not going to suffer eternally. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a a charge to grow into Christ, up into what Christ has called you to do, and to obey his commandments as you do it. In other words, Christianity is intended to free us up from sin enough to do what God created man to do, which is to rule and reign on his creation. And notice also this, Matthew 7, 24, where, where Jesus is talking about the importance of being obedient to his words. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And we want to be wise people who build our house on the rock. That gives us a sure foundation. That means whatever storm comes along, whatever turbulence in life happens, whatever difficulties we might encounter, we are built on the rock because the foundation of Christ is the only stability. It's the only sure thing that we have in this creation. There's no way to have, have security in anything other than Christ. And so the way we build ourselves on Christ is we, we begin to become disciples of Christ. We obey his commandments, which means we study and learn his commandments, and then we do them. So obedience to the commands of Christ means that we must grow up in Christ. Now I want to show you a little picture here of how this happens. This is a little, uh, a little graphic that shows how people mature in Christ. You see, we start out in rebellion, and then as we mature in Christ, we wind up in a state of surrender, which is, that is a state of obedience. And you notice there are five basic um, categories of people. The first category is the far from Christ, right here. That's, that is the very first category. These are the people that have no interest in Christ, don't care anything about Christ, don't want to learn about Christ, they don't give a rip about it. They're far from Christ. Those people we probably rarely come in contact with. And now, then there's the curious about Christ. The curious about Christ are those that have had some kind of trauma in their life. You know, they've had a reality check. Notice uh, this right here. Just like Paul. When Paul was on the, the, the Damascus Road... He was fat, dumb, and happy. He was going to kill the Christians, and he had a reality check. He met Jesus on the road. And so that raised his curiosity. He asked the question, who are you? He got, he got very curious very quickly, and that's what happens when we have a reality check. And, of course, he was born again. He was regenerated right there. And so now what you have is a baby Christian. And Paul started out just like everybody else as a baby Christian. He knew virtually nothing. He went off and spent... Years studying and learning, even though he was a learned scholar in the Hebrew tradition, he knew nothing about Christianity. And so he had to go and learn about Christianity, and he had to learn and develop disciplines. Disciplines are critical. You have to have disciplines, spiritual disciplines, if you're going to grow up in Christ. And that's the next phase, is we want to grow up in Christ. We want to become like Christ, and we do that by putting disciplines in our life. You see, when we start out as baby Christians, we still live with the habits of the world. That's where we were. The only thing we knew was the world's ways. And so now we have to learn Christ's ways. So we have to learn habits of how he lived. And so as we learn those habits, what happens is we then facilitate the incarnation of a biblical worldview. That's what's happening, is we're beginning to incarnate a biblical worldview. And as that happens, we become Christ-centered. And so that's how we grow up in Christ, is this, 
this uh, four-step process. And as we do that, you'll notice over here on this, this side to the right here, what happens is we gain a clarity on our life purpose. Increasingly, we see why God made us and what he created us to do. And so let's go on to another text that gets more specific about our specific obedience, what we are supposed to do. Specific obedience refers to the specific intent and purpose of God for our life. General obedience is in turn is, is something that's it's called general because we all have the same command. That is to live, to learn and live a biblical worldview, to grow up in the Christ. We all have the same commandment to do that. But now we have specific things we're commanded to do that are unique to us, that have to do with who we are and how God created us. And so Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is a great text to see this. We all know this text. It reads, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Notice this. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, that's an amazing thing. Now, most of us have a dualistic mindset, so we reinterpret this verse. We interpret words like good works as uh, being like good deeds, like, uh, uh, you know, going to church or going on a mission trip or, uh, you know, praying for somebody, which all of those are good, but that's, that's not the full meaning of the word. The full meaning of the word is this word, Greek word, ergon, refers to all kinds of works. It doesn't matter what kind, all types of work or what, what, what's meant here. And so what we need to do is we need to recognize that God has saved us. That's what it starts out with saying is we've been saved through faith. And it's not, a, it's not an act of, of our works. It's grace that saved us. And we've been saved for the purpose of doing the works that God created us to do. These works which he prepared in advance for us to do, which means God has a plan. If you prepare something in advance, that means you have a plan. So the plan of God is for us to do the works that we have been called to do. So if we're going to do that, we have to discover those works. How do we find those works that we have been called to do? How do we do that? Well, may I suggest that we need to start studying how to do this. And one such way is to, to attend the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar. Some of you have attended this seminar and you know what this is like. The Strategic Life Alignment Seminar will provide you with biblical tools to help you discover your life purpose the works that God prepared in advance for you to do. In other words, the plan of God for your life. And finding and fulfilling your life purpose is the greatest way to build certainty into your life in the midst of a very uncertain world. And if you go through the seminar, let me just give you a flavor of some of the things you will learn. Number one, you will learn the C4 principle, which is illustrated here in this little uh, graphic over here to the right. You see the four circles, and you see the intersection here in the middle. That intersection is your bullseye. And most of us have no clue how to find that bullseye. Well, you will learn the C4 principle in the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar, and you'll learn how to find the bullseye of your life. You'll learn how to hear God more clearly. And you'll learn the fact that you probably can't hear Him as clearly as you think. So we're going to give you ways to learn to hear Him. We're going to help you develop a life plan. We're going to help you recognize the things that will block you from finding your life purpose. All of these and more, these are the kinds of things you're going to learn if you attend the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar. You will go through the workbook that I've, I've developed. It's almost 200 pages in length 
with uh, close to 30 pages of exercises that will help you begin to uncover what God's called you to do. You will also get a copy of the Beyond Babel book, which is my book on how to build great organizations. You will get your personality profile. You also get audio from the seminar. All of these are tools that will help you go deeper into what God's called you to do. The Strategic Life Alignment Seminar is an invitation into a journey. It's not so much an event. It's an invitation into a discovery process. It's an invitation into finding out what what God created you to do. It's an invitation to learning how to prosper in an uncertain world. Well, Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity, for the privilege of, of talking about you and talking about your creation and thinking about what's going on in our world from your perspective. Father, our desire is to, to know you and to walk with you. Our desire is to hear your voice. Our desire is to obey you. Give us grace to do that. And Lord, grant us favor as we learn to become disciples and as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. To that end, we commit ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen.